working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. Today my conversation is with Jordan Manley, a young drummer on the Atlanta scene who has spent the last year touring with Matiel in the opening slot for the likes of Jack White and St. Paul and the Broken Bones. He's 29, which definitely makes him one of the youngest drummers we've ever interviewed, but as you'll hear, he's always seemed to have wisdom and sensibility beyond his years. Jordan grew up in the small town of Columbus, Georgia, where his early career was highlighted by an original hip-hop band and a country cover band, and he made the move to Atlanta four years ago. If you want to support what we do here at Working Drummer, it's easy. Just go to workingdrummer.net, and along the right side of the homepage, you'll see buttons for PayPal and Patreon. Every donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. You can also contact us through that website or through Facebook and Instagram, and please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube, and leave us a rating and review on those platforms. This episode is sponsored by Sure Microphones, who is calling on drummers and percussionists from 44 countries around the globe to enter Drum Mastery 2019, the Sure Drum Contest. This is your chance to win a five-day trip to London with two days at Metropolis Studios, a one-on-one drumming workshop with Ash Sohn, a drum miking workshop with a pro studio engineer, and $5,000 in Sure gear. In addition to the grand prize winner, second and third prize winners will receive Sure gear gear packages worth $3,000 and $1,000 respectively. Visit drum-mastery.sure.com and submit a solo video. The deadline for submissions is April 15th. There will be 45 finalists, one from each of the 44 countries selected by Sure and one wildcard fan favorite. Winners will be selected from the finalists by an all-star international jury. All 45 finalists will receive a Sure MV88 Plus video kit, which is really cool. Look that up if you don't know what it is. And a pair of Sure SE215 sound-isolating Bluetooth earphones. Those will come in handy on the plane. For more details and to apply online, visit drum-mastery.sure.com, and we'll have a link to that site on this episode page. Once again, deadline for submissions is tax day, April 15th. Time now, once again, to hear from our friend, RJ. Hey, Matt. How's it going, man? Hey, man. Down to the wire. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pulling, like, one of those old-fashioned, like, O.J. Simpson's, like, Hertz car (laughs) commercials right now. Nice. Actually, I'm not running that fast. (laughs) It's only only two... uh, Two, two gates, two or three gates down, but but yeah, thanks for hitting a moving target today. <laughs> yeah, hey, hey man, no worries. Hey, this is part of it, right? So, where are you going? Uh, well, I you know I was in Dallas for a couple of days after we finished that tour on Saturday night, and uh, I'm on my way out to California to do those four shows with Junior Brown. Oh, right. So. Yeah, so the first show is tomorrow, tomorrow night in like Agora Hills, okay. um, kind of out there by Mal- Malibu area. But it's all Southern California stuff, <clears throat> and uh, spent the last couple of days like sleeping and refreshing my memory on all his 
material and figuring out how it's going to fly like my, you know, kind of like my rig for, <laughs> for his gig. Okay. You know, which is, you know, it's like a snare drum, cymbal, uh, drum, drum. I'm actually using like a beginning percussion kit bag to put my hardware in. Okay. <laughs> you know, because all I needed was like the, uh, you know, cymbal stand, snare stand, and like thrown bottom. I have a thrown top, like in my suitcase with a cymbal. You're flying everything. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I, I probably could have like rented stuff, but I didn't want to. Yeah, I didn't want to cut into like I, they, there was no offer made and on this situation for him for them to cover like backline. Yeah. So you know, and I and luckily it's the flights are Southwest, so you know you get like two bags for free and plus a carry on. So I got like a snare drum case and you know uh, my suitcase and my beginner percussion bag. <laughs> And a, and a backpack, and I'm good to go. No nice. extra charges. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's great. But, uh, so no kick drum, just snare? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just snare, and, like, you know, I have some uh, some brushes and, like, uh, kind of, like, big first version of, like, hot rods and some sticks. There's, there, there are a few tunes that I get to bust out the sticks for, but primarily it's, like... Brushes and hot rods on the whole gig. Okay. How long are you filling in? Four days. Oh, great. At this time, like, this this is just a little four-day run. We'll, we'll be finished on Sunday night. Uh, Monday morning, I'm actually flying back to Nashville. Oh, great. I'm flying up at, at Loud Jams on Monday night. So. Right, right, right. Well, we're, we're, I mean, just so people know, they don't know what, what what's going on here, but you're in between flights. You're, you know, we're trying to get caught up with where oh, you're yeah, at. And so, no, that's yeah, fine. I'm in, I'm in a Las Vegas airport right now, and I'm oh, trying, it, I yeah. just walked past a bunch of slots and resisted the temptation to, uh, to lose some money. <laughs> yeah, and if you see a guy uh, that looks like Carrot Top, don't give him any money. That's all I'm telling you right now. <laughs> yeah, right. Doesn't need it. <laughs> And you said you were doing some resting and all that stuff. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm feeling a lot better than I did on Monday. <laughs> on you know, we we finished the tour on Saturday, House of Blues, and I my my uh, energy and excitement was still. Wait one second. Yeah. Okay, they're just getting ready to book. Yeah, I th- I thought for a second that maybe I had missed the boarding oh. <laughs> <laughs> because there was no one there was no one there was no one in line yet but i and then he got on the mic and i was waiting to say okay well that's the last call but no we're actually just starting sinking but down. yeah no i um you know i've i've rested a lot on sunday monday it really hit me though like i was really exhausted on monday for some reason um slept a lot of the day spent some of the day starting to listen to juniors stuff and that's pretty much all I did yesterday, Tuesday. Yeah. I listened to a ton of Junior Brown music and kind of just refreshed my memory and took care of some stuff that I need to take care of, like uh, business-wise and whatnot, and started did laundry and started packing yep. uh, to, to come off of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just got to um, get it together and yeah, turn well, around. I, yeah, yeah, it was a quick turnaround for sure. You know, all my the rest of the guys in the in Reverend Horton Heat's operation are all still kind of like laying low because we were gone, man, forty days and forty nights, oh literally. 
it was th- 34 shows, but over the course of 40 days and 40 nights. Wow. Like we were walking around in the desert that whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so, man, it was the longest tour that I've done, actually, in my life, you know, so now by you know. like a week or so. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, uh, well, the, I'm glad we had a chance to just at least check in um and we'll yeah. we'll 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 catch back up in a couple of weeks to kind of see how the tour went yeah thanks man and when i catch back up with you in a couple of weeks i think i'll be back in nashville at that point so oh good looking good. forward to spending some quality time out there okay well listen this is good man this is great it's great to hear your voice and we'll cut you loose so you can get a good seat and um and just hopefully get some sleep tonight all right man I appreciate it, Matt. Talk to you soon, brother. All right. Thanks, RJ. See you, man. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye-bye now. So I had a great talk with Jordan here in Atlanta. He's an energetic, funny cat and seems to be clear-eyed and focused when it comes to his musical identity and his career trajectory. So hope you dig it. Here's Jordan Manley. So it's pronounced Matiel. Yeah. I think everybody around town is... Matiel. <laughs> Matiel. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. um, so you did the uh, uh, the opening slot with, with St. Paul and the Broken Bones. Yeah. With Matiel. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin. Right. I just interviewed him like two months ago or I listened so. to that a man, couple of days ago, man. What a sweetheart he is. I know, right? It's so funny. Yeah. Man. And he has a great speaking voice. He does. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you wouldn't... Like, to, to look at him, you wouldn't think it, but then this, like, boom like baritone comes out of him you're yeah. like oh shit yeah he should he should be like a sports talk radio guy or something <laughs> like that that voice is incredible he would have so much fun yeah dude. hey buddies welcome to the game <laughs> oh man um so uh was that the first time you'd gone to europe yeah how long were you out um, the first time we went out in the summertime like early summer and we did all festivals and we were out there for I guess it was three weeks the first time. Uh-huh. And then the second time we went out for three, maybe it was three weeks, but it was mainly just the UK. So we didn't right. do all the country hopping. It was just like everything's on the island. Right. Um, and then we did, we, we kind of went a, a week early to do jewels. But most of the, the, the last time we went over was like basically 14 days in England. Yeah. Which was, you know, it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. I love, I love Europe. I've been um, to a few different countries, but I've never been to England. Yeah. And it's definitely like. Where have you been? Next on the list. I've been to Italy, Germany, Switzerland, the Netherlands. Um, is that it? That might be it. See, I'm trying to get some of that Germany action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. I've never actually been to any of the big cities in Germany. I've mm-hmm. been to like a couple of the small towns. Yeah. Um, but I would, I really want to check out, uh, you know, Berlin and mm-hmm. and just the big urban centers in Germany because right. they seem super cool. Munich. Um, you know. So what's what for you? Like, what was the what what were the pros and cons of the opening slot? <laughs> Oh, man, that's a great question. <laughs> okay, so as an opener, uh, the pro is you get done early every night. Right. And you get to pack up and just hang out. Like, right. that's the fun part. Like, you know, uh, Kevin and St. Paul and the guys, 
you know, like, yes, they get to ride on a tour bus, which is, like, awesome. Uh-huh. I wish we could. Right. But, like, you know, a lot of times they get in the van, like, or they get in the bus, you know, two hours after finishing the show, and they basically have to, like, sleep while they drive right. to the next spot. Um, so as an opener, you know, you kind of have that choice, you know, uh, when you get done, we have, like, three hours before we have to hit the road so mm-hmm. we can hang out or we can hit the hotel early. You know, there's a lot more leniency. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I didn't – there weren't any bad parts. Yeah. You know, I, I don't really – you know, whenever a band invites you to open up for them, it's, it's an honor, right. especially when they're, like, good guys. Right, right. Like, St. Paul and those dudes, I've been watching them for – maybe like six or seven years now, Mm -hmm. you know, like they used to come through Columbus, Georgia and play festivals and stuff. Yeah. So it was really cool uh, to hang out with them and they're Alabama guys, you know, so it's not like a foreign culture exchange or anything. Are you an Alabama guy? No, well, I'm a Columbus, Georgia guy. Okay. But Columbus is basically right on the Alabama border. Right. So you get a lot of that. Ward Eagle, Roll, whatever, <laughs> you know. Roll, roll, roll Eagle, right? Roll Eagle. War there's, tide. A lot, there's a lot of that going whatever on. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there, there really wasn't a bad side of being the opener. I mean, sometimes the, 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 uh, the headliners will, you know, they'll vibe you and kind of, kind of try to keep you in your place, you know, so yeah. they won't give you a lot of things on your rider and stuff like that. But it, it's to be expected, you know. Right. You're, a, you're a guest, right? So and. Um, so you didn't you didn't travel like at the same time as St. Paul? Mm-hmm. Like you had just your own kind of vehicle and your own itinerary? Yep. And you just met up at the places. <laughs> right, right. That's that's interesting cuz like I think of opening acts like I, and I assume that a lot of them work this way like everybody is just kind of on the same mm-hmm. Convoy. <laughs> you would, you would think. Yeah. You would think so. I mean, it was like that with with Jack White, with Portugal the Man. You know, all of our opening slots, uh, we're kind of on our own itinerary. Right. You know. So. Ma- so Matil is open for those acts too. Yeah, it's been a good. Last year was a good year. Man. I didn't realize that you you'd done all that. I thought it was just St. Paul. It was cool. St. Paul was was tight. That was probably the most fun we had. Right. Just because they were, you know, they were willing to like hang out with us. Right. You know, right. Um, it didn't seem like we were being little brother uh-huh. um but i mean jack white was cool yeah. you know like that was you know like dream come true Man, that is <laughs> hanging out cool. with him who was playing drums with him uh carla um Man, I forget Carla's last name, but her her Instagram is Carla Carla Carla. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I remember. That's easy enough to remember. But uh, but yeah, man. Um, I, I, it's a shame. I forget what other band that she she's in. She's usually like a I, I guess a synth or a head like a, a front woman. Mm-hmm. But she's a hell of a drummer. Yeah, you know. And it was cool like watching her kind of warm up into the tour. Right. You know. So like she was she was getting it. Like, you know, show number one, show number two. But by the time, like, show four, five, and six came up, she was just a beast. <laughs> she was warmed up. That's you know? great. Yeah. So, like, as an opening slot, you what do you play, 30 minutes, 40? Four, uh, 30 to 45. Okay. So Depends. 45 is good. I mean, 30 seems like you're just settling in. Right. You know? Right. Um, and Kevin's been doing these, well, like, I was going to say he's been doing these TV things, but you've done a couple of those too, right, with I've, Jules? Yeah, I've done, I've done like, maybe two. 
one doesn't really count. It was like an internet thing, but right. but I've done I've done uh, one in Europe, and then of course the jewels. That was that was the big show, yeah. and uh, Adult Swim Blood Feast was really cool. Oh, right on. Yeah, that's local. So yeah, that, yeah, that was really special. Yeah, but it's like those TV gigs seem like one of those you you, you spend all day there and play one song. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like you know, it's like hurry up and wait. Right. 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 Um, so yeah, I mean sometimes uh, if the if the if the scheduling is really tight, they'll give you like thirty minutes to do your thing, mm-hmm. and you know that's probably the only downside of being the opener is you you don't really get time to warm into your set yeah it's just like play the hits bang 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 get off stage as quickly as possible right you know and wipe off the sweat (laughs) right right um did you get to hang with kevin in europe yeah uh not in europe um we toured with saint paul during um where was it mostly east coast so it was like okay yeah it was like you were in europe with him not with him gotcha with him uh that in europe it was mateel like uh doing festivals first Mm -hmm. and then headlining in the in the fall oh cool um so that's kind of cool just the fact that she's you know we're we're nobodies here Mm -hmm. but then like you know she's on bbc radio in europe it's it's (laughs) <laughs> there's there's a few bands like that. I mean, Delta Moon yeah. is like that. They do they mm-hmm. do like regional gigs. They don't really tour around the U.S., mm-hmm. but they do regional Southeast stuff. Mm-hmm. Just kind of when they feel like it, and a couple times a year they go to Europe. And yeah. everybody just loses their mind in Europe. Gringo Star, right? Yeah, right. they're they're over there right now. You know, Man. so it, it's funny how you know you're playing the Earl and Five Two Nine and stuff like that. Yeah, but you know, there's still a market of you know people who just want to buy records in in Europe. Right. They really love music over there. Yeah, and they value it. So, what what kind of a gig is Mateel? What what is her uh, what's her vibe? Oh man, she's got a good vibe, and it's it's cool because uh, you know you get to be. I mean, it's kind of. You get to be a specialist, you know, like uh-huh. as for me as a, as the drummer, you know, I don't have to take responsibility for any of the PR, any of that. Yeah. So it's literally just like, you know, wake up on time, shower, you know, just don't smell bad right. and, <laughs> and, and play the gig. You know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and no, it's, it's all good. Kicking, but, e- kicking each other under the table here. But but um, but yeah, it's it's sweet. And it's also cool seeing Mateel mature as a performer, mm-hmm. you know, because she's uh you know, she's kind of, this was her first musical project, so she's really been performing for maybe like two, two and a half years, and it's been really cool just to see her taking leaps and bounds, like, as a performer. So but, she just decided to go at music, like, mm-hmm. two and a half years ago? Yeah, like, apparently she's had a she's had a gift for singing, and she uh-huh. kind of kept it as like a closet, right. you know, uh, skill that she had. What was she doing before that? She works at MailChimp. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. And, you know, like, of course, as musicians, you know, you like in the early days, you know, you kind of have that that little bit of bitterness that right. you have to observe in yourself. Like, yeah, she yeah, she's she's new here. Wasn't yeah, right. right. You know, and I'm right. sure that she's not a, she's not a lifer. Right. She's got a day job. This right. It's just like her dabbling or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Um. And, you know, at, but at once you kind of get past that, you know, you're like you start to realize the um, the importance of just like. The talent of marketing and branding and yeah. things like that, you know. So that's kind of what I'm just learning, just by osmosis. You know, being around her. Right. You know, we teach her how to be a, a better performer, better musician, blah blah blah. Uh-huh. And you know, she, you know, I kind of observe her and watch how she how she brands everything and how she makes her her business moves. Yeah. It's really cool. Interesting. Yeah. So what are what are some of the lessons you've learned from her, and what are some of the lessons that you have taught her oh, in man. this in this exchange? Um. 
some of the things I've learned from her, uh, how to pick your spots, uh-huh. you know, like she, you know, like me, I'm the drummer, you know, and drummers just want to play drums. So it's like a lot of times, anytime you get an opportunity to get out there and do your thing, you're like, yeah, you know, let's try it. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. Right. You know, Mateel and Randy and Jonah, the the songwriters, like her, her partners, uh, you know, they're, they're really good at being selective, uh-huh. you know, selecting the right opportunities, trying to stay away from, you know, just trimming the fat yep. and making sure every time you're seen, it's in a good light. You this know, is, in the best dude, light. this is something that like, it's a recurring theme in the last... <laughs> month or two like both on the podcast and in my life mm. um just kind of being being aware of of quality over quantity right when it comes to filling your schedule mm-hmm. and we all like it's it's all of our instinct to just say yes like, yeah if you're free say yes right. <laughs> get it like get it on the books get out there be seen blah mm-hmm. blah blah but uh but yeah i think there's definitely uh, uh something to like you said, picking your spots picking and, your and spots. making sure that when you are seen, it's with something that you can put your name behind, that you're proud of, that you want to invite people mm-hmm. to, not just something to fill the schedule and make that hundred bucks right. that Wednesday night <laughs> right. or whatever it is. You tell it I'm a businessman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, no, it, you know, that's, that's uh, probably the thing that I've learned best from her, you know, and just not being ashamed about it, you know, mm-hmm. really... Uh, uh, last year was the first time where I started trimming the fat from, uh, you know, the the wheat from the chafe right. as far as all the gigs. Because, yeah. you know, as a drummer, you want to be involved and you want to uh, show yourself in different styles yeah. of music and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, 20, what was it, 17, 18 maybe, that was, that was the first time where I started saying, hey, you know, I got to stop returning this guy's calls or I, I got to stop showing up for this gig. Right. You know, so now it's just, you know, it's really down to like three, maybe four bands yeah. locally. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, a, it's a good balance. Yeah. And that also, like... When you when you trim the fat, like you said, you kind of develop um, a, a lane yeah. to be in. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, apart from filling the schedule, we all want to be thought of as the guy that can do anything, right? But you run the risk of like some people think of you and they're like, well, what what the hell does that guy do? Yeah, like does he have a specialty <laughs> or is he just kind of okay at everything? Right, you know. And it's it's not a bad thing to be okay at everything, but if you can develop uh, just kind of a reputation for being good at something, right, particular, or a yeah. couple things mm-hmm. like a couple of vibes, a couple of bags. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk, you know, Kari Simmons. Yeah, uh, I was talking with him like a month ago, and and um, he he talked about. Like when when musicians want to level up, like mm-hmm. when they want to, you know, advance their career or whatever, a lot of them think that they have to um, make their lane wider mm-hmm. or get into other lanes and like just kind of spread out horizontally. Yeah. But he was like, no, just like figure out what your lane is and make it go uphill. Ooh. You know. See, that Kari's wise. I know. <laughs> Kari's wise. I know. For anybody who doesn't know, Kari was involved with uh, NDRE, right? Yeah. Wasn't that his his big thing? Yeah, and I don't know if he is still. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, him and uh, Charles Lamont mm. like toured together with. That's beautiful. Yeah, Charles is God. What a beautiful cat. <laughs> he was, he was one of the first Atlanta guys that I interviewed. Oh yeah. Uh, like two two and a half years ago or something. Nice. Um, but yeah, that really that struck a chord with me with with Kari. He mm. was like, you don't you don't have to start doing different shit. Yeah. You just think about how you can make what you're doing better and higher and more and yeah, upward. elevate that, yeah, right? Yeah. 
Um, so what were um, what are some of the ways that that you and the band have have helped Matil along in oh. her performance? Oh yeah, man. Um, well, first of all, she's a great songwriter, and that you know I've learned that that goes a long way. Mm-hmm. You know, just just having the talent to and the patience to put put words on paper. Yeah, you know, and and just almost paint a picture with your words like that alone is a is a talent. Yep. But what we've kind of helped her out with is mainly performance. Mm-hmm. You know, the performing side of things. Like stage presence, fronting the band. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, when when we first, uh, when I first met Mateel, um, you know, she was like halfway through recording her album. And she, you know, I probably saw her on her second or third live performance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was just kind of being the artsy girl, you know, just like trying to be too cool for the stage. Right. Like, hey, I'm not supposed to be here. Or like looking, <laughs> you know, or maybe she was shy and she just didn't want to look at people's response. Yeah. So, you know, it, we. We, we she's definitely like opened up a mm-hmm. lot and you know it's cool because when you get on tour and you start really vibing and you get so comfortable with the set and everything becomes second nature you know then even as a singer you know it becomes like I know the job that I have to do now it's like let's let's actually like give people something to remember you know yeah. Let, let's you know things like uh like uh helping the people uh like chant like I remember one of our shows was in Leeds and uh Leeds the football club is really famous for uh this chant where they go like lease 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 <laughs> and and uh you know Mateel, you know just hanging out for the in the hours before showtime you know she she starts learning this chant like oh this is really a thing and she's right. not a sports person right but she's like oh this is a thing people actually like this and you know she had the balls to try it on stage and the people just loved it oh, you man. know they they fell in love with it that's great uh there there there's a thing about fronting a band and, yeah. and being a front person, and as a sideman, mm-hmm. it like having having a front person who knows how to do that, yeah, um, just makes the gig so much easier, right. and so much more enjoyable, mm-hmm. and it has to do with like how how that front person is kind of a liaison between the band and the audience right. in that interaction. And it also has to do with like leading the band with mm-hmm. like hand signals or, <laughs> right. you know, if they know if they have a vocabulary that's easy to follow physically. Um, and, and any good show should, you know, there should be a synergy, you know, yeah. there should be a synergy. Like that's one thing you get in really small. The, one thing I love about playing the really small clubs, uh, you know, around town is there's that synergy where the audience is right there. You yeah. can see them, you know, you can see the, their eyes. You, you can, can smell them. You can smell them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like everything's really close. You can hear the little conversations underneath. Right. And, you know, just being able to like catch someone's attention and warrant a response from them. And then it warrants a response from you and everything's kind of, you know, the stage is feeding back to the crowd. The crowd's feeding back to the stage. Right. Sometimes in those, you know, with like bigger shows that gets lost. Yeah. You know, and it, it you know, it's good when you have a front person. And who can, like you said, tie the audience to the mm, band? Yeah. You know? it doesn't just feel like you're a fish in a bowl right. performing. Right. You know? I, I'm thinking of uh, two women that I play with, Ruby Vell, Ruby, and Ansley Stewart, mm-hmm. and they're kind of they're kind of opposites as far as like the stage presence front woman thing. <laughs> yeah. Because Ruby is is like super extroverted. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like she's <laughs> dancing all over. She's running. She's like high fiving the audience and like yeah. she's that kind of a, an ambassador. From mm-hmm. the stage, and she goes out to the audience. Good word. She is an ambassador. And Ansley is kind of the opposite, where she's like she just kind of holds a space, mm. and the audience comes into her. Yeah, you know. Um, so it's it's made me think about my stage presence, and like 
you know, and and neither one is right or wrong or better than better than the other, but it's just kind of two two choices, two different vibes, yeah. and it's it's made me think of how I look and feel and am perceived behind the drums. Like, am I yeah. going to be, am I going to be like Kevin Leon, just like <laughs> <laughs> sticks of hair all over the yeah, place? Yeah. Or am I going to kind of go inward and, and like focus on the groove and whatever, but whatever I do, I got to make it an intentional choice. Yeah. Don't just be kind of slack jawed and staring off into space, mm-hmm. you know, look like you're doing something intentional. You have to mean it. Yeah. Everything, everything has to be intentional. Yeah. What's it, what would you say is your style? Most shows. My, my, uh, instinct or my my default is to kind of be introverted yeah, yeah. and just go inward uh-huh. you know i have to i have to make more of an effort to like be animated right right you know but and it, I, it's okay to be introverted and and kind of whatever yeah. but like i said if you look bored mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the worst that's, that's a problem we can't have bored um, drummers and i've been i've seen pictures of myself or video where i'm like god i just i don't look like anything yeah you know i don't look like i'm concentrating <laughs> i don't look like i'm having fun uh, and i am doing both those things but yeah. you know i just it's somebody uh there was a guitarist in la uh, I forgot who said it, but he was like, if, if you're having fun, inform your face. Uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, what's, what's your tendency? Uh, man, I'm, I'm a battery. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's kind of the, uh, the, the reputation that I've gotten. Um, you know, because my thing is, you know, whenever I step on the bandstand, like, we have to... You know, I'm I'm of the mindset like we have to level up, like we have I have to take you to the next level. So it's like when I'm here, uh, when I'm you know backing any artist on stage, I'm always just thinking like I want to make the the crowd get into it immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, and also I have this weird thing where I just kind of giggle on stage. <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes it's it's because I'm having fun. Sometimes it's because I'm like maybe I'm I'm fucking up. I'm making mistakes. Right. You know, so if I if you know sometimes if I'm playing a sloppy show you know i'll still just like constantly laugh it off while i'm playing yeah and people tend to like that right. you know even if you have a bad gig it, it looks good in photos right you definitely know. definitely <laughs> it, like on an instagram photo people don't hear what that gig sounded like <laughs> right they can only see right. what it felt like exactly you know? exactly um so uh what what is the vibe of uh Mateel's gig musically um uh, what do you mean? Expound. Well, is it a, is it a rock gig? Is it? A- oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, so it's I would I guess call it garage rock would yeah. be or garage soul. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's a lot of different styles of American music, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. We forget sometimes that like American music has styles. Like yeah. there's there's lots of different American styles of music. Mm-hmm. So whether it's whether it's a uh, you know some of the singer songwriter Bob Dylan. You know, Patty Smith style stuff, like Mathilde's a big Patty Smith fan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or even, you know, some of it's bluesy, some of it's Motown, some of it's, uh, you know, like 60s or 70s style rock and roll, uh, some of it's Euro pop. Uh-huh. Um, you know, but at the end of it, it it's all just like kind of grimy. I wouldn't even call it grimy, but just like a garage style. It seems rock to have a grit to it. It's like, got it's got grit. Yeah, yeah. You know? And you know, the, with the exception of the Europop thing, like the the term Americana has come to, you know, just mean <laughs> no, nothing anymore, and and right. encompass all of those styles. It encompasses everything, but um, means not much. Right, yeah. and I think it's it it came about just so people didn't have to do what you just did, which is rattle off like six or eight, <laughs> you know, ingredients. Yeah. But those are important ingredients. Very, like, very. You, you know, I the term Americana just doesn't tell me anything <clears throat> about 
you know, what something sounds like. Yeah. You have to get into those subgenres of like, well, it's a little bit Motown. It's yeah. a little bit singer songwriter. It's, you know, um, yeah. So, uh, and so she, she writes the songs and mm-hmm. yeah, Randy, was, her, Randy, well, she's purely the, the writer okay. and, uh, all of the music is orchestrated by Randy and Jonah. Gotcha. Uh, me and Travis, I don't know. Do you know Travis Murphy? Yes, is, me and Travis, we come on as just like the the, the hired guns, you know. Gotcha. So we come on and play play uh, the rhythm section. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, everything's crafted by Mateel, Randy, and Jonah, and uh, they do such a really good job of just like kind of balancing out each other and bringing out the best in each other. Right. Like it's really it's really cool to watch. And when it comes to you and Travis, um, Travis is the bassist. Yeah. Um, do they? Do they have like specific ideas for what they need from you for that song, or do they kind of trust you to? They they trust us. That's you cool. know, it, it's really cool because you know, of course, in the early days, you know, I've, I played with Randy and Jonah and Black Lennon, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we're a rock band, and we we since Mateel stuff kicked off, we haven't really done a lot of Black Lennon stuff. Right. But the band is essentially the same. It's right. it's still Black Lennon behind Mateel, and like. You know, in the early days of learning Black Linen songs, you know, Randy and Jonah would always give me the freedom to be a drummer mm-hmm. on songs that don't really require great drumming. You know, yeah, yeah. you know, there's certain styles of music that require like an outstanding drummer. Like, you know, most jazz tunes don't sound good without an, a phenomenal drummer. Right. Um, but, you know, some of this stuff when we're doing like surfer rock or some of this like, you know, James, uh, not James Brown, James Bond yeah. style, you mm-hmm. know, rock and roll or soul music. Uh, you know, I'm kind of just required to stay in the pocket. I can show flashes and, you know, they do a really good job of inserting some some kind of free time into the set yeah you know because it's essentially a lot of pop songs you know mm-hmm. it's it's real simple a b a b kind of stuff right so we do get some time to stretch out you know uh for maybe five or ten minutes on a 45 minute set right and uh yeah it it's great man How old are you? Ah, <laughs> this is fun. I was thinking this earlier. I'm I'm 29 right now, and okay. I'm I'm gonna be tw- uh, turning 30 uh, in May. So this is like the end of the world for me. And like, <laughs> it's over. <laughs> right. It's all over. Right. It was, so I, I'm glad you had a nice little career. <laughs> right. And now you're done. But uh, <laughs> so you know that's something that I'm that I'm kind of getting. I'm gearing up for. Yeah. You know. Uh, but it's funny because I've been in Atlanta for four. Uh, I guess this is four years now. That was my next question. So yeah. So I, go ahead. You you moved from Columbus to Atlanta, mm-hmm. um, and you're 29. Okay. Yeah. So you've only been here like a year longer than me. Yeah. I moved here three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so... What well, like what were you doing in Columbus? Was there anything to do in Columbus? Not really. I mean, look, man. I, first of all, shout out to Stereo Monster because those are my guys. Like uh, when I was in college, uh, I was in a band, uh, Stereo Monster, and it's it was essentially you know fifty fifty right down the middle, hip hop and rock and roll. I know I'm loud. You're, you're, no, you're good. You're, it you're, was it was like you 50, seem to be comfortable leaning forward. So uh, like, yeah. yeah, I don't have a problem with it. But uh, you know, Stereo Monster, we were together for about. I guess it was six years, you know, and uh-huh. we and we we lived together, you know. Those are my brothers. 
So that was a Columbus-based band. It was a Columbus-based band. You're playing clubs around there. Mm-hmm. Doing and we did South by Southwest one time. Okay, yeah. You know, we did a lot of the Southeast, but um, college gigs. Exactly. Gotcha. You know, that was back in the day where you know we thought that was the greatest thing ever. Was like we can get hired by a you know a frat house to come play for a few hours. Well, that is the greatest thing ever. The it's first pr- few times it happens. Really. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> when you're 22, that's the greatest right. thing that could ever happen to you. Right. Uh, but you know that you like all bands it ran its course and once it ran its course i you know i was just kind of stuck in columbus for about two years and i was just like you know i had that moment where you're like okay is this all i'm gonna do you know is am i gonna does it stop here Uh or am i gonna like struggle and fight to take it to the next level so i decided to do that and you know i spent a year in columbus just kind of like playing in a in a country cover band you know just to keep my chops up um you know and just like paying bills and and doing regular stuff teaching i was teaching Mm full-time and uh i did that for about a year and a half and made my move up to atlanta and um you know in a matter of two maybe two and a half years everything just you know just just kind of took off okay so um when you played in that country cover band right what was the name of the band uh, it was just named after the, the singer. It was Chrissy Andrews' band. Oh, okay, cool. God bless Chrissy Andrews. She, <laughs> she saved my life, man. Keep them, keep them country gigs coming, Chrissy. Yeah, dude. Um, so about a year ago, or maybe a little longer, my partner Matt in Nashville yeah. did uh, like a roundtable discussion called The Black Drummers of Nashville. Okay. And it was Derek Phillips, Marcus Finney, um, uh, Keo Stroud, uh, ha- about half a dozen guys. Yeah. And, and a lot of the conversation was about this kind of recent trend mm-hmm. over the last five or ten years of white country artists yeah. with white country audiences mm-hmm. putting black musicians in their band. Yeah, it's um, a thing. It is a thing. It's been a thing, yeah. So, so their, their experience was more on the... Uh, like, you know, they're playing, like, arena tours and, and major, major artists. Yeah. What was your experience of that dynamic on, like, the local club scene level? Oh, man. Let me, okay, give me a second on this one. Because, <laughs> okay, as a, as, a, as a black man, you know, like, playing in a country band, like, it, it, I understand it can be, like, you know, a fun experience or really cool when you're doing stadium gigs. Like, uh, I don't know if you know Sterling Whiteside. Uh, uh, but I know that name. Yeah, Sterling plays with uh, Corey Smith. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he plays. He plays with Corey Smith, and he's been doing that for a few years. And I see him just like doing. You know, Corey's just killing stadiums like mm-hmm. every night and stuff. Uh, I was doing just bars, right? You know, and that's that was the thing. It's like in Columbus. In a thirty mile, you know, in a in a thirty minute drive, you know, radius, you know, you can play Auburn, Lagrange, you know, a lot of like these backwoods cities, the Woodstock, maybe yep. uh, places that I I can't even, you know, remember. But the thing that I liked about it was. Uh, it helped me get used to going into hostile environments. You know, like everybody wants the people in the audience to be just like them, right. you know, which is kind of weird, you know, yeah. like you, you always want your audience members to like, like really love you and you always want to relate to them. But that's rarely the case uh-huh. in any gig you do. Like even with Mateo, we want everybody to be like cool and, and, and well-dressed and, right. you know, and have good taste in music, but that's not always the case. Right. And you can't, you can't, 
you know, you can't. Beggars can't be that. choosers, man. Exactly. They paid for a ticket. You're they, gonna bitch about what they're wearing. Exactly. <laughs> you gotta show love. You know, and and uh, and especially in America, you know, the vast majority of people coming out and paying music for shows are, you know, those people. Right. So being on that country gig for a year really got me comfortable with just like showing up and being myself in in an environment that's not always like built for me, right. you know? So you go in there and, you know, every now and then, you know, we, we play clubs where there's, you know, Confederate flag, like behind the stage. Yeah. We, we played like lots of that. Um, but man, the people showed love, mm-hmm. you know, we got great tips, <laughs> you know, we made, yeah. we made our money mm-hmm. and, you know, I didn't stay to hang out, right? But, you know, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't stick around after the gig, you know, I play, I get paid and I leave, yeah. but it was a, it was a great experience man and um you know and i still try to find uh you know every now and then i still take gigs like that no not country gigs but just something to get me out of my comfort zone yeah you know whether it's you know playing uh you know blues or you know i have a guy in town that i play like Afrobeat kind of stuff yeah, with yeah. um and even with lightning orchestra playing like psychedelic music yeah, you that know it's wild it's so good yeah. <laughs> it's so fun are man. you the only drummer in that or did they do two it's me and scotty Scotty, right? Do you know, you know Scotty? Yeah, yeah, I love Scotty. Man, Scotty too hotty. That, <laughs> that guy's great, man, and he's 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 an excellent like drummer and percussionist. Yeah. So like even when he's playing percussion alongside of me and I'm playing drum set, you know he has the pocket of a. He so does, man. man. He, like he just understands. He and and having him there like. Uh, just kind of gives it it's it's not quite the same as having double drums yeah. but but it just uh Derek Trucks referred to the double drums thing as like it gets tribal yeah. really fast really fast and but and Scotty does that it's just like creates that engine room feeling mm-hmm. of a percussion section right not just a drummer right um uh, okay, so we got off. We got off track. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about the country band. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in Columbus, like, did you did you go to school at all? Did you? Yeah, I went to I went to college, like traditional college, Columbus State for. I did it for two years, mm-hmm. and then I decided I'm paying too much money. This is not fun. What were you studying? I was studying history oh. because I loved history. Yeah, yeah. I still love history. That's a, a big reason why I like music because mm-hmm. there's always some kind of historical you know, lineage that goes along with the music you're playing. Yeah. Um, but I was a history major. And then after the first, after the second semester, I realized like how much writing goes into it. And I was like, I'm not ready for it. You know, this yeah. is my thing. Mm-hmm. And I was just wasting my money. So I was like, Hey, let me, you know, and it was a tough thing at, at the time, yeah. you know, especially like, you know, with my parents, you know, I was like, you know, I'm going to go and try this music thing, you know, and just see how far it'll take me. Right. You know, I was like, I'm good at it. These are like the best years that I can really go after it, yeah. you know. So I'm gonna run through that and, and see how it goes. And there were some rough years. There's still some rough years. Oh yeah, you know, like <laughs> it, it doesn't doesn't necessarily get easier, but it gets better. Right. You know, you get better opportunities and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, um, I was going to school out there for a while until I dedicated all of my time to playing with uh, Stereo Monster, mm-hmm. and we had a good run. We had a we had a really excellent run, but you know, I didn't realize exactly how big the music business and the music industry is until I moved up into Atlanta, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. I was saying in 30 miles in a, in a 30 minute drive in Columbus, you know, you can play Auburn, you can play LaGrange in a 30 minute drive from like downtown Atlanta. You're, you can play like hundreds of spots, yeah. you know, and, and big see, and small, big and small. And mm-hmm. you can see so many different 
types of people, you mm-hmm. know. So, uh, you know, I've been, this is like, uh, I'm having a field day up here, man. Yeah, it seems like it. You're all <laughs> over, man. So what were what were the first, like, year or two mm-hmm. in Atlanta like? Um, hard. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the first year, for me, my first year was spent, um, uh, I probably spent the first three or four months. That was the hardest part. Because mm-hmm. I was just like, you know, trying to find a day job. Because I, I had a really nice gig in Columbus. I was teaching full time uh-huh. and it was cool because I'm, you know, I'm a self-taught drummer and right. the, one of the schools down there, you know, they had the, uh, the faith to, uh, take a chance on me. And I think thought I did well with it. And at some point, I mean, I was teaching 25, maybe 30 students a week yeah. and it was great. Mm-hmm. But you know, with teaching at a certain point, it becomes like babysitting when you have too many, yeah. too many students, yeah. you know, it's, you know, they're just kind of dropping a kid off like it's Taekwondo lessons or soccer. Exactly. Practice. And I've, I've talked about this before. Like that's, that's a double-edged sword yeah. because like I'm, I'm about 10 years older than you. Mm-hmm. And, but still when, when you were a kid, when yeah. we were kids, like we got put in drum lessons because we showed a talent for it, because we were like super into it, right. and our parents were like, "If I'm going to spend this money, like you better be serious about show this. me returns." Right? Not that not that we'll grow up to be you know professional drummers, mm-hmm. which we both did, but but it's like shout out to us. <laughs> but no, our parents were like, "Are are you going to like be serious about this and get better at it?" And, right. But now. Like you said, it's like taekwondo mm-hmm. or soccer. It's just, it's every, just something to do. It's a time filler for right, and that's I, I mean that's great because I think every kid should be involved in music mm-hmm. in some way. But at the same time, for teachers, it's like, well, yeah, what do I do with this kid who has no talent and doesn't give a shit? Like you said, <laughs> it's a double edged sword, man. Yeah. You know, like th- that's the thing with with teaching. Um, you know, once you get over that, like fifteen twenty student. Uh, threshold, you know, some a good majority of those students are, like I said, you're you're babysitting some of them. So I was doing that in Columbus and I I just, you know, stepped back at one point and was like, okay, you know, I can I can teach at this school and kind of hold this gig down for another 10 years and be the man, you know, and just be that dude, Mm -hmm. like, you know, running lessons in Columbus, you know, or I can continue to follow this dream of performing, you know, and, um, you know, I'm glad I did. And, And that first three, maybe four months in Atlanta was, uh, you know, just grinding, just, um, you know, scratching and surviving. Yeah. But after, you know, after I got through the wintertime uh, and the, the gig started picking up in the spring, I had already found like a good network of guys. Right. Like um, Elliott Street was really kind to yeah. me. I, have you ever been? Oh, tons of times. Man, yeah. like that jam saved my life, you yeah. know, <laughs> just just being in there and seeing all the different styles of, of drummers. Yeah. You know, like you got the gospel guys, you got the Georgia State Jazz, yep. you know, Aim Cats, you mm-hmm. got the Shredders, you got the Amateurs, you got the bass players pretending to be drummers. <laughs> like, you know, there, there's like such a... Uh, such a big community of musicians and everybody has their own style yeah. and it kind of forced me to find to find my own style and be like okay well these are the things I'm good at maybe I can just be enjoy being good at these I don't have to be the greatest jazz drummer right you know that was something that I struggled with for it's that. something I still struggle with man yeah. and like like we were talking about what is your lane yeah you know what mm-hmm. are, you got to decide to be good at something <laughs> and and you can't you can't try to incorporate every single thing you see in here right into your playing because then I mean it's just getting further and further away from being true to yourself right you like know? I was telling a, a, one of my students um, I was telling him about John Bonham yeah. you know that's one thing that I always liked about John Bonham it's like 
yeah, especially later in, in his career, you know, you started seeing him try different styles of music, mm-hmm. and it always sounded like John Bonham. Mm-hmm. Like, the John Bonham samba is hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious. I have not heard the John Bonham uh, samba. What's the, you know, the... Um, uh, I can't think of the song. Uh, it's oh, not, wait, it's the... the um, maybe like Houses of the Holy. Boom, boom, boom. Fool in the Rain. Right. So he nailed the Purdy Shuffle. Yeah, he nailed but, the Purdy Shuffle. But and maybe the Samba. Not the Samba was cool. It was, yeah. It was just <laughs> hilarious because, yeah. you know, you got this... This There was no internet, you know? So, right. So it's like, how else would John Bonham learn how to right. Samba? So he kind of turned it into like more of a snare march with the kick pattern going. Yeah, that's, you know? that's true. And yeah. I mean, the like there was the kind of, you know, Cuban piano thing going. <laughs> Yeah. So, and you know, I kind of, uh, I, I still live by that, man. You know, you can learn all the different styles that, you know, that your heart sees fit. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's got to sound, it's still got to sound authentic. It's got to sound natural and comfortable. Mm-hmm. Like John Bonham sounded really great playing that little British, you know, uh, samba. Yeah. You know, like he he sounded great playing it, yeah. and it, and it was powerful, and it, it still sounded like him. Right. You know. Uh, so I, I'm trying to keep that up myself. My my uh, mentor in college, Doug Allwater, is a, a Brazilian and Afro-Cuban master. Right. And he fell in love with Brazilian music and Brazilian culture and all things Brazilian. You know, decades ago. Yeah. Um. And he told me, "You're you're never gonna be really good at a style that you don't love." Right. Like True. you can you can learn the style, you can learn the beats, you can whatever, but if you're not like super into that music, mm-hmm. you won't sound the same as someone who is super into that it's music. It's going to show. Yeah. It's going to show. Yeah. And you know, also, you know, that's the thing with most quote unquote Latin, you know, right. when you when you're talking about any type of exotic like non-American music, um you know, most of them weren't meant to be played on drum set anyway. True. You know, so you're already coming in behind the eight ball. Yep. You know, you're trying to do the job of like 20 kids on a street corner. Yep. On yeah. a, on a four piece drum set. <laughs> Doug Doug wrote this amazing book called Essential Latin Styles for Drum Set, mm. and it's it's divided up into two halves: Afro Cuban and Brazilian. Yeah, and it's like part method book and part textbook, and mm. he goes into the history and the instrumentation, and he tells you like. Here's here's all you know. Here's the eight instruments that this style was played on, yeah. and here's how we're going to translate it to drum set. That's beautiful. It's real. It's a badass book. That's I can't recommend it highly enough. I have a uh, a New Orleans book like that. I mm-hmm. forget who does it. I haven't opened it in a while, but yeah, you know, kind of taking you know taking you on a journey from like the the early like Congo Square days and right. saying like, okay, well, this was played on a on a uh, you know like a hoe. You know, like yeah. this this was played with a with a metal stick on, on a, a bottle on a bottle or something. <laughs> and this is how we transcribe it. Now let's bring that and play it on the ride symbol bell, you yeah. know, stuff like that. Yeah. I think people like educators and people who write books are getting better at kind of connecting those dots. Because mm-hmm. I think in our generation it was just like, here's the notation. Mm-hmm. Here's the beat. You know? Right. And there was there wasn't much Story. Yeah, there was no story. Tell a story and there there wasn't like here like go check out this record yeah. for this style, you mm-hmm. know. I think the, the, the drum world is particularly guilty of that. Oh, just yeah. like here's the beat without the context. Mm-hmm. You know, and drummers just want to learn the beat. Yeah. And, and they don't care about the record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and guys are getting we're, we're getting better. Because yeah. that And I say that I I think young drummers are, yeah. are guilty of that. Not, for sure. Not all drummers. But. For sure. Like a lot of my contemporaries, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of my contemporaries are guilty of that, man. Um but you know, there, there's always got to be a story 
to go along with this. Like I like that book, uh, the Breakbeat Bible. Yeah. Have you, have you checked that one out? Some of it, yeah. It's a you know it's a method book. Um, it's, it's a lot big. of it's a big thick method book. <laughs> and because he has a lot of text in it, and he he kind of refers to records, right? And he you know basically he he sounds like he set out to write the hip hop beat Bible. Yep. You know to show you like hey these beats didn't just come from nowhere. Mm-hmm. You know there's the James Brown stuff. There's you know Bernard Purdy stuff. Mm-hmm. Blase blase blase. This is how we get here, and now we just speed it up by like 50 BPM, and you know, and now we're playing uh, uh, EDM. We're playing right. drum and bass stuff now. So he, uh, whoever that guy was, uh, the Breakbeat Bible, that was a really cool book. I can't think of is it, it's not Adam Deitch, is it? No, it should be Adam Deitch. It should be. No, he Deitch. wrote a different book. I can't remember who the Breakbeat Bible is. I can't remember that guy. Yeah, somebody, somebody, shout at us on Instagram or something. Yeah, shout at us. Man. Um, so. You're self-taught. Like uh-huh. what before before Stereo Monster? Mm-hmm. Were you just like jamming in your garage? Oh on, yeah. Just what were you? Mom's listening garage. To? <laughs> okay, so my my story kind of starts with gospel music. Uh-huh. Uh, my mom's a a, a preacher, yeah. and um, your mom's a preacher. My mom's a preacher. My right. dad, he's just chilling. You know, <laughs> you know, he, he's just kicking back. You yeah, know, he's yeah. he's devout himself. But my mom, like, she was really like the astute. Like, yeah. went to seminary. Like minister, cool. and uh, you know when we moved to Georgia, this was like when I was maybe six or seven. Uh, you know, we we joined our uh, church, and you know, my mom first got into you know the gospel and everything. Where'd you move from? We moved from like we were military. So, oh. we, you know, so uh, we moved from like Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. Um, you know, my parents lived in Hawaii before I was born. Wow. And then we eventually settled in Georgia where my mom's family is. Gotcha. So, you know, that first, uh, you know, all through elementary school and middle school and high school, you know, I was in church. Mm-hmm. And there's always, you know, it's such a funny like subculture, like the church drummers, yeah. especially in the in the 90s and like early 2000s, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like gospel music was just so huge. Yeah. And you had so many guys that were like putting out these crazy, like next level recordings. Right. You know, whether it's, um, you know, I mean, there's like Aaron Spears, there's a, uh, uh, God, there's, there's lots of people. Chris there's, Coleman, Tony Royster, keep naming Lil John. <laughs> like all, yeah. Tons of Marvin McQuitty. Yeah. You know, guys, guys like that. Like I, I was listening to so many like Fred Hammond records, you know, just before I was a musician. Mm-hmm. So that was my first experience with music. And like, you know, I was singing in the choir and I hated it. <laughs> and <laughs> I was singing in the choir. I hated it. And, and, uh, you know, my church got their first drum set, you know, and my, my uncle, he was the minister of music. So he would be the guy that's picking all the songs, playing piano, mm-hmm. and he was also a multi-instrumentalist, so he would, like, sometimes put the beat machine on with his, like, old-ass keyboard <laughs> and just, like, play bass while he sang a song right, or play right. guitar. So, you know, I was around it in the early days, but once that church got the first drum set, I was like, yeah, I have to do that. Like, mm-hmm. I have to. There's no way I'm going to be, like, you know, a solo singer in this choir, right. you know, right. in my teenage years. Like, I'll get laughed out of school. Mm-hmm. So uh, once I got the chance to get on, man, uh, there were, like, two drummers in front of me, mm-hmm. and one of them was, the pa- like, the pastor's, one of the pastor's daughters, and then there was, like, just some kid named Jay. <coughs> and, uh, you know, circumstances happened, and one of the kid's parents had to leave the church on some really bad terms, and the other, uh, the girl that was playing, she just kind of lost her interest and moved on to something else, so voila, 
y'all are stuck with me now. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the story of my life is like, hey, you're stuck with me now. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'm here now. So, so uh, you know, that's, and I, man, that's how a lot of gigs happen. It's yeah. like, you know, we, we inherit it from somebody. <laughs> right. I think, you know, very rarely uh, do we get a gig that like we're you know, we're part of it from the ground up. Right. You know, there was almost always a predecessor. Mm -hmm. We get the gig because somebody got fired or somebody (laughs) moved on or somebody got a better gig or somebody died. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. It's very common. Yeah. It's very common. So, you know, they, they were stuck with me and I, I took the torch and ran with it. And I, I, you know, how old were you? I was maybe like, uh, when I started playing. No shit. So I got a, I got a late start compared to some guys. But no, you started playing in the church, like for the services? Yeah, when, when, you I, were when I was 10. Son of a bitch. So it's really cool. You know, that that's invaluable experience yeah. because what I noticed as I got older is like, you know, most people, when beginners, don't get a chance to perform at all. Yeah. You know, that's why people put their kids in drum lessons and stuff like that. So yeah. they have an opportunity to perform mm-hmm. once a year, twice yeah. a year. But as a church musician, you know, I'm like 10, 12 years old and... Every, you know, you have to show up on Wednesday to play for the Bible study. Mm-hmm. Then you'll show up on Thursday for rehearsal. Then you show up on whatever event's going on on a Saturday because they do that. And then Sunday, you might have to play in one or two services. Right. So it's a lot of experience. And, you know, we talk about those, um, like, the 10,000-hour rule. Yeah. You know, that's really where I cut my teeth and got my performing experience. Right. You know, you start to see, like, oh, wait, like, there's actually, like, people... <coughs> dance differently when I do a certain beat. Yeah. Oh, that's cool cuz I'm 12 years old. Right. You know, like, what if I do something like this, you know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, shout out to uh Mrs. Miriam, Miriam Ray. You know, we had this African lady that was at our church. She was from Ghana and mm-hmm. her whole family. So you would see sometimes, you know, when we cross over from like R&B style gospel into like some of this new age, uh, you know, Calypso or Soca or stuff like that. You know, you start seeing, (coughs) you know, you see Miss Miss Ray in the corner of the building, like kind of shaking it. You're like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like I can bring this out of people. So, uh, yeah, that was my first real experience. So I played in church from like 10 to, I don't know, maybe 19 until wow. I until I moved out of my parents house yeah. and once I got out of there I became a rebel and you know now it's like yeah I'm, I'm gonna join a hip-hop band and right. you know play loud music right right you know um so what what made you kind of um why aren't you a gospel chops drummer oh man you, you got the good question <laughs> all right here's what happened to me my story was I fell in love with the Gospel Chops videos because, you know, as a beginner drummer, that's like, you know, all the glitters is gold. Right. You know, you right. see you see the fast, like, shiny shiny drum sets, and the guys are, like, playing them super fast, and you're like, oh, my God, this is, like, the best shit ever. Right. Like, it can't get any better than this. <laughs> and uh, But the thing that I've noticed is... You know, when I was uh, a teenager playing in church, most of the musicians were older. And, you know, older guys, they like pocket. Like, they swear they live and die by pocket. Mm -hmm. So that kind of forced me to be like, okay, well, if I want to keep this gig, I won't be an asshole and just overplay everything. Mm -hmm. So I went from, you know, working on my right foot and trying to be super fast and, and, you know, trying to do these, like, magic tricks on the drum set, trying to be a drum set athlete, to really embracing, like, just making the other musicians feel at home uh-huh. and that kind of became my mo so now i kind of take that everywhere i go with me you know every time i step on the bandstand you know i got to make everyone around me feel comfortable 
and and that's what's going to keep me getting the call. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And was that something you intuitively did, or did the old guys yell at you? The the old guys yelled at me a few times. <laughs> but as, eventually, as I got into, you know, high school and college, that became something I instinctually did. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, it just kind of... Uh, uh, you know, I wanted I wanted to get calls back. I wanted to, you know, I was playing in a hip hop band, mm-hmm. so it's like as a you know you you never want to play over the singers or the rappers. Yeah. So and you know I became a better listener. Like okay, well he's gonna stop on you know beat two here. Yeah. So let me kind of I'll be like a DJ. Mm-hmm. You know I'll kind of scratch the record or pre, you know move the fader or, or pause the record or whatever yeah. as a drummer. Yeah. And it'll bring out the raps better. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that I really noticed was a lot of the guys who were chops obsessed like my contemporaries in the gospel scene most of those guys just played themselves out of gigs mm-hmm. so you know uh, uh, you know I'm kind of watching everybody just kind of you know lose a gig go work at AutoZone or lose a gig and go you know do some bullshit and I was like man I don't want to be one of those guys let yeah. me just stay disciplined and stay responsible and just not focus so much on chops but just like keeping good time and being a good performer you know, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's what kind of got me away from the gospel chops thing, right? You know, right. so even nowadays, I, there's still that little, you know, twelve year old inside of me who's still like jealous of guys who can go really fast. Yeah, but you know, I'd rather have a gig. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather have a gig. <laughs> so um, the church thing is how you got a bunch of playing experience, but yeah. what about your listening experience? Like mm. as a teenager, what are you putting in your head? That's the first thing for me was, of course like gospel music because yeah. my mom was strict early on and she was like you know we're, we're not gonna you know I mean hip hop at that point in my life was like P. Diddy like Mo Money Mo Problems right. you know Hype Williams videos and you know Outcast and stuff like that yeah. and she wasn't down with that and I, I didn't push it on her you know I didn't try to be an asshole to my right. mom so I was like okay as long as she's around I'm just gonna listen to gospel music and I'll learn what I can mm-hmm. but um, once I got older um, my, my homie B. Easy from Stereo Monster, while we were living together, he really got me caught up on my hip hop music, you know, because like just being a gospel musician and you you're being around just like gospel all the time, it really hinders you in a way. Yeah. So I got into anyone I, style will do that. Anyone like, style, you know. and I got into on one side, you know, B was teaching me. Uh, like more hip hop history, mm-hmm. you know, and he was like starting. B's the older, little older than me, so he was starting in like the '80s, you know. So he would start off with like uh, Big Daddy Kane and and Rakim yeah. and Cool Mo D and cats like that. But uh, you know, he was also a big fan of like the modern hip hop at the time. So like Lil Wayne and and Outkast mm-hmm. and uh, Goody Mob, uh, you know, Too Short, you know, everybody like that. So yeah. he gave me a really good hip hop education uh-huh. while I was playing hip hop music. And I also got into rock and roll because the other front man in that band was a was a singer songwriter, more like rock and roll type dude. Yeah. So from those two guys, you know, I got like a really good understanding of like the essence of rock and roll, the essence of hip hop, yeah. and then everything in between. I just kind of connected on my own. Right. I, I was a big jazz listener. Really? Know? Yeah. I couldn't play jazz, but I would. I loved to listen. What you, know? you, you listen to? Herbie. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I was a Herbie fan. I'm, I'm, I love all styles of Miles Davis, mm-hmm. even the cheap. 
eighties stuff. Like, I, I love that. Man, the first <laughs> the, one of the first jazz records I ever got was um, like my you know my high school band director told uh-huh. me like go get a Miles Davis record. Which go one check. You get? What'd you get? The first one I got was You're Under Arrest. Hey, and it was like that cheesy eighties thing, and yeah. Miles is on the cover with like a fedora and a Tommy gun. Right. And I listened to it, and I was like, I don't know what the hell this is. <laughs> so I went I went all the way back, and I got uh, Birth of the Cool. Nice. And I was like, okay, I can here we go. I can get my head around that. <laughs> my first, see, my first Miles experience was Bitches Brew. Oh my God! Like, here's my my story. Like, okay, uh, I don't know if you ever saw Prince live at the Aladdin. Mm-mm. Well, uh, it's a really cool. It, it probably was shot in very bad quality, you know, at the time. Right. But when Prince made that comeback in like 2003, okay, you know, and he's like, okay, well, I was a Jehovah's Witness for a while, but now I'm Prince again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so he kind of resurfaces with this DVD, and he's got John Blackwell on drums. Yeah. And man, John Blackwell was like my biggest influence when I was like a teenager. So I was going to ask, like, who became your drum heroes? At that time, it was like Carter Buford and John Blackwell. Carter. Yeah. I will defend Carter till the day I We die. must protect Carter. Man. You know, don't let the, the, the Dave Matthews band snobbiness. Well, not the snobbiness, but people were just taught to not like Dave Matthews band at some point. Yeah. But it's like, it's good music, it's man. It's great music it's and great, great music. song. Like, I think he's a great songwriter. Mm-hmm. Maybe his voice pisses some people off. Yeah. I don't know. And yeah, Carter overplays. So? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we're not all Mo- trying to be Carter Beaufort. It's just fun to listen to. Yeah. And, and, uh. Man, Carter right. Carter was he was a great influence on me because at my time at that time for me, you know, anytime I listen to music, it had to be, you know, if I wanted to listen to any type of like out there or racy music, it had to be like in a live music context. So I got into the habit of buying these music uh, DVDs, mm-hmm. you know. So I I watched all the live concert DVDs. That was my thing. So like I would watch Dave Matthews Central Park concert, yeah, and I would like sit there with the headphones on and just play that whole concert. Yep, you know, <laughs> like I would sit there and play like every song yep. in a three hour set. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. I did that. I did that with uh, Big Whiskey and the Grugrux King <laughs> when that came out like twelve years ago. Right, because I like I had fallen off the Dave Matthews wagon like mm-hmm. before these crowded streets was the last good one yeah yeah you know mm-hmm. and then they they did, did different producers and yeah. it just got it's just like all the edges got sanded off right right and Carter didn't even sound like Carter anymore oh. like they changed the sound of his drums mm-hmm. and I was just like ah whatever and then Big Whiskey and the Grugrux King came out and I was like oh shit Carter's back <laughs> and he's pissed <laughs> you know yeah um, and I think he's he's one of those drummers like like Lars or Rick mm-hmm. or Neil Peart, like he is the right drummer for his band. Right, he wouldn't be who he is if he wasn't in that band. Mm-hmm. And Dave, that, that whole band wouldn't be as cool if Carter wasn't in it. You know, right. if they had another drummer, it would it just wouldn't. It would be a completely different band. Right, and people shit on 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 Lars, myself included. Mm-hmm. But like Metallica wouldn't sound the same with a different drummer. Exactly, it might you know be more in time. <laughs> <laughs> but is that good? Is that what we want? <laughs> You know, do we want an on-time Metallica? Yeah, do we need Metallica on a grid? I don't. I don't think <laughs> no. so. But 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 yeah, man. I mean, my my first experiences were like those music DVDs. So I had this Prince DVD, and he was in a casino or whatever the Aladdin is. You know, it's like one right. of those Las Vegas right. arenas, and uh, you know, he was like. Y'all want to talk about what's pop? Miles Davis used to be pop. And I was like, that was the coolest thing I've ever heard anybody say. Who's Miles Davis? <laughs> so, then, like, so then I go, you know, I go and this is before YouTube was like 
you know, YouTube yeah. before YouTube was like all media. So I had to actually like go to a CD store and find a Miles Davis record, and I just picked the one with the coolest cover, and that happened to be Bitches Brew. Mm-hmm. So that was my first experience with Miles was like coming in and watching him just like lose his shit on record, and like you know doing like tape edits and shit like that. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, like this is this is you can do this, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then from there, that's when I kind of got into the commercial Miles Davis, and I was like, wow, this is good too, right? You know. And uh, even the old '80s stuff, man. Like I have, I was listening to uh, "We Want Miles," huh. you know, the yellow, the big yellow cover, and it's right. like most of it. I think is like live in Japan. It's got Marcus Miller on bass, and you know, even that stuff, man. It's like, yeah, this is the music Miles should have been making in the '80s. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it sounds. It's trying to be hip hop, but it's kind of jazz, right? And it's really processed, and the snares are like three hundred pounds. <laughs> you know, they got these big compressed snares. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was my my earliest experience um, as far as like digesting music. Mm-hmm. You know, it was Miles Davis. It's a lot of uh, a lot of Prince. Uh, and I was a rock and roll dude, so I liked the contemporary rock bands at the time. So, like, My Morning Jacket, uh, Patrick, mm-hmm. what's his name, o- O'Callaghan, yeah, uh, the big burly, like, grizzly bear dude right. that's playing drums for them. Right. Like, I, I loved his style, you know, his wild man style. Um, I loved the Mars Volta. I was, like, a crazy Mars Volta head. Yeah. You know, I still have, like, Mars Volta shirts and records all yeah, over yeah. the place. Um, so it seems yeah. like you you weren't focusing on like what exactly the drummer was doing mm. focusing on like how do i play that beat how do i get that lick it's it sounds like you were more focusing on on the bigger picture of yeah. how a drummer in a given band kind of interacts with that music exactly. and the role that they play. Exactly. Which is a wise beyond your years approach. Yeah, for, for how old I was, yeah. I, I guess it was kind of wise. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was never, you know, like I said, I was never really caught up in the, I mean, yeah, I, I learned how to read music, uh-huh. you know, and I was really, I was obsessed with Modern Drummer Magazine when yeah. I was a teen. So I would look in the education section and be like, oh man, these guys are like right, transcribing some of my favorite records. Yeah. And that's really how I learned about like writing and transcribing is like listening to a record and being like oh that's what it looks like on paper yep you know mm-hmm. but i never i never got into just like uh the x's and o's right you know i was more of like in football they say x's and o's versus yeah. jimmies and joes <laughs> you know so i'm i'm used to i'm used to the jimmies and joes approach like yeah. learning how does this drummer uh convey uh, how, how does he kind of uplift the rest of the band? How is he uh, contributing to the to this performance, mm-hmm. and not just contributing to like uh, a drum magazine subscription, right. you know, like transcription article? You yeah, know? yeah. Like we're not trying to be cool for drummers. Like I want to. I'm trying to get. You know, no drummer has ever paid me to be a you know show up to a gig Mm -hmm. you know it's always the non-drummers it's some you know it's somebody's mom yeah it's it's the kids it's uh you know the the guy you know who owns all the gibson les pauls that just likes to come out and and watch live music Mm -hmm. you know so i've always had this this feeling like i have to reach that person and not just try to showboat for other drummers right and and you got to reach the other musicians like what first and foremost what drummers yeah. what drummers like about other drummers is not usually what other musicians <laughs> like about drummers true you know true this episode is brought to you by drumsellers.com the niche marketplace where drummers drum retailers and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear list your drums for sale for free and the only fee is four percent if it sells simple check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. When you move to Atlanta, like you've got this uh, 
stereo monster experience under your belt. You've got the country band experience mm-hmm. under your belt, the church thing, the gospel thing. Um, and when you got here, like, did you have a did you have a plan, or did you just kind of get here and say, okay, what's going on? The, la- the latter, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the latter, because I, I had come up to Atlanta to play a few shows, you know, but I never really got to spend extended time. You know, I would stay with friends for like a weekend or something, yeah. but I never really got time to just like be a regular guy in Atlanta. So I was like, let me just, you know, I did so much in my small neck of the woods, my little country town, you know, by just being, you know, a responsible, like accountable dude Mm -hmm. and being a, you know, working at my craft. So I was like, let me take that same approach and just put it into a bigger space. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and yeah, it paid off. I mean, I I knew I wanted to be in a good band and get better opportunities. Uh, at the time I was, uh, you know, I was founding a band because I'm just a band dude. You mm-hmm. know, I like to I like to have uh, like collaborators yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, me and a few guys, you know, we had like a horn section and stuff like that. We played a few gigs. Um, but my plan was always just like uh, focus on the craft and everything else will just kind of gravitate towards you. Hmm. You know, that was the extent of my plan. But it was crazy, man. I mean, I, I literally... You know, I wrote a five-year plan while I was in Columbus. Really? You know, you've, you've, you've done that. No. Never? No. I mean, I've thought about it, but I have never. Look at this nice space. You, <laughs> you, you've obviously, like, <laughs> planned something. Uh, Come on, Yeah, man. but I've never written it down. Oh, like, man. I've always had goals. I've always kind of been looking a year out or five years out yeah. or, or whatever. But, I, yeah, I'm not, I, I've am not. i never it, written it down. It's right. magical. It I works. Should. It I works. Do it. Ansley Stewart talks about her dream board. Yeah, she, every girl has like a dream board. <laughs> every, yeah. Guys don't do dream boards, but we should. Yeah, maybe I should. You know, we should balance this thing out. Right. You know, dudes are dream boards. (laughs) But I like literally, man, I should have brought the notebook with me. I wrote, I filled up like two pages of just stuff. You know, I read somewhere to like you should, uh, you know, make your goals way bigger than your your perception of reality. You Uh know, like make outlandish goals and just see what you can see what what comes to fruition. Uh So like I had all these dreams. I was like, okay, well, you know, I want to. Uh, you know, being a good band, first of all, I want to like be on a bunch of, uh, you know, I want to record a lot. I want to get better as a studio musician. It's like I want to travel to uh, a bunch of countries like as a drummer, not just as a tourist, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, tourism is great, but I, I'd rather be there in a working capacity, you uh-huh. know? So like, I want to go drum everywhere, blah, blah, blah. Man, like maybe a quarter of those goals that I wrote down on the five-year plan were done in two years. Wow. You know, by like two years in Atlanta, like most of that, probably a quarter of those goals were done. And I was like, wow, I need to make better goals now, (laughs) you know? Um, But yeah, that was, that was my plan, man. I just wanted to be in a good band. I wanted to be uh, prolific, you know, with Stereo Monster, I learned that I had a good performance uh, repertoire, good, good attitude on stage. And I brought out the best in musicians, but now it's like, I wanted to explore myself more like in a studio sense Mm -hmm. and just, you know, learning how to play on a mic, you know, how to, you know, thing, yeah. things like that. Yeah. Um, and I've been I've been doing all of that, you know, since I moved to, to Atlanta. And there's some places to record in Atlanta. I mean, it's, yeah. it's no longer, it used to be, you know, like Chicago or L.A. or Dallas where yeah. there were like a, a few big houses, mm-hmm. you know, um, that did everything under one roof. But now it seems like not just Atlanta, but everywhere, mm-hmm. like you go to somebody's house. Yeah. Atlanta was the home. I mean, from an outside perspective, Atlanta was always the home of the 
home recording studio. Really? You know, like everybody here has a basement and everybody has a studio in the basement. Yeah. You know, like I've I've recorded demos and stuff in like so many people's basements and yeah, garages. No basements and, in LA, really? No. <laughs> <laughs> I guess with earthquakes, you don't really. Yeah. Basements don't help you any. Man, I experienced a couple of those <laughs> when I was there. It was. I don't miss it. Yeah. Um. So where where have you gotten to record in Atlanta? Um. I've done 800 East. Yeah. I did an event there a few a uh, few months ago with Julie Dexter. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with her, yeah, I know her. Julie's dope, man. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I've done like a, a Valentine's Day like live recording with her. Uh. I got involved with Randy and Jonah. Uh. We have this thing called the In Crowd. Mm-hmm. And uh, In Crowd. Uh, as cheesy as the name sounds, <laughs> you know, it's just basically us saying, "Hey, we have all of the, you know, like Randy has all of the equipment and the know the the know how yeah. to record his own records." And he's wrote, you know, he's he's wrote for uh, Leon Bridges and mm-hmm. Curtis Harding and some guys. So it's like he's proven to himself that, hey, I can write a hit and have something that'll, you know, maybe chart. So it's like, let me do that for myself. Mm-hmm. So I kind of got. When me and Randy linked up and started playing as Black Linen, you know, we would do like weekly sessions over at his house. And he liked it because, you know, I would get in there and, you know, we were basically helping each other tune the room, Mm -hmm. per se. So, you know, I would get in there, play drums, and he'd get all of his levels right. And we'd experiment with different drum sounds, different snares, different kicks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like he, I helped him kind of find the sound that he likes as far as drums. Like the big, like, almost like Wu-Tang Clan drum sound, Uh but then, like, taking that and putting it into a Motown soul kind of uh, vibe. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I've done a lot of stuff through the in-crowd with Randy and Jonah. Like, I go over there maybe maybe once a week, once every two weeks, you know, and just record something. Right. Um, With no specific goal in mind. No. Just, like, explore sounds, explore songs. Exactly. Sometimes, A lot of times it's just almost like beta testing. Yeah. Um, You know, I'll come in with little ideas and record. Some Most of the time it'll be Randy. He has a song idea. He'll be like, I need a drum like this. You know, I got this song. I want it to sound like Diana Ross and and, uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, like, (laughs) singing over a a Jizza beat. A Rizza. A Rizza beat, my bad. (laughs) You know, so we it's been a fun experience with all of that, but I've also recorded at uh, Itchy Brain. Are you familiar with that? I've, yeah, I've heard that name. I've never been there. Where's it, that at? Itchy Brain's in Avondale. Okay, it's behind right here. the Waffle House. Behind the Waffle. It's behind the Waffle House. <laughs> you wouldn't know it because you know how many things in Atlanta are behind the Waffle House. <laughs> the entire city of Atlanta is behind the Waffle House. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you come you come east on I twenty, and there's just a big Waffle big House. Big Waffle House. Atlanta's right behind the Waffle House. Atlanta's right behind that. <laughs> You can't miss it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, man, I've recorded at, uh, at Hella Studios, but most of them have been home re- home home recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been really cool, man. It just shows that, like, you know, you don't need a big infrastructure, you know, big backing to make really good records. Yep. Like, even Mathilde's stuff. I mean, I played on a few songs on that album, and most of them were done... You know, just in Randy's living room. Yeah, you know, with the curtains drawn. Right. You don't. You don't even need like super fancy space or gear. You just need ears mm-hmm. and know how. Yep. And I mean, those are hard, hard enough to come by. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's where I'm at now. Like I I have to like this space. I've I've got it tuned pretty well. But now I got it. Oh yeah, that, that sounds <laughs> great, man. <laughs> Tony, Tony Terrabone did this. Do you know Tony? I don't know Tony. He's Ansley's uh, boyfriend. Okay, and he used to be head engineer at Zach Studios. Mm. Um, he's he's recorded like Grammy nominated. Nice. Shit. He's his 
resume is insane. Um, but he put these panels up, and so like now that I've got this kind of dialed in, uh-huh. I've got to get some mics in here and just start uh-huh. learning how to do that. Yep, because I know a little bit, but. Um, but not enough. And and uh, Hubert Payne did a great interview on this podcast a couple of years ago, and he talked about um, like don't don't wait until you have everything you want Man. to start doing it. He like in his yeah. home studio, he said he started out with like two SM fifty seven and just started learning how to use those. Right, and he wasn't getting paid for any of it, mm-hmm. but he just put himself through the paces and then gradually got more gear. Exactly, gradually got more skills. And and that's how you build it. Yeah, so. that's man, that's major. Don't wait until you're ready. Yeah, you know we got to stop doing that. Like, don't you know? Even me, like I got to tell myself that every day because I'm like recording original music now. Mm-hmm. You know, like I've been composing on GarageBand cool. and then like kind of delegating it to some of my friends. You mm-hmm. know, in the studio, and uh, you know I have some recordings. They're they're on SoundCloud. You can check me out. Um, but. You know, I had to get over that, like, you know, stop waiting until you're ready because you'll you'll never really be ready. Mm -hmm. You know, just get it out there, work on it. It's going to sound bad at first, but it'll get better. Right. You know? Yeah. You don't have to show it to anybody. You you know, just do it. It'll sound bad. Right. Like, (laughs) you know, and uh, man, our tour manager, Pete, man, he dropped some uh, gym on me. He he told me a conversation he had where, uh, you know, he kind of a guy compared the writing process, like the creative process to a rusty faucet, hmm. you know, and it's like, you know, you turn that rusty faucet on and at first you get all of that orange, just like <laughs> shit coming out, you know, the rusty water just right. kind of, you know, puffing out. Yeah, yeah. But after a while, you know, you give it time and that clears up slowly but surely. And eventually, you know, you look up and you have a steady stream coming of just right. like fresh water. Yeah. And that's kind of how the creative process has been for me. You know, I, sometimes you do have to get in there and just be like, OK, this might sound bad, but we're going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, but you build a repertoire of like eight, 10, 20 of those ideas mm-hmm. and you're going to have some good stuff in there. Yeah. You know, and at a certain point, it just becomes prolific you know it become it becomes clearer and and more focused and everything just starts to sound great Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you develop that muscle yeah but it never starts it never starts good right yeah right you know um so what uh what's next for mateel and what's next for you and yeah man uh, what's 2019 look like yeah, 2019 just started looking cool. You know, like I don't know, I don't know if you have those uh, like the holiday season. Oh yeah. You know, I, like I, I got to tell myself this every year because it's like you know the holiday season is everything just kind of shuts down. Yeah. So you just have to be like a regular dude. Right. For you know three months mm-hmm. and just stay afloat and you know there's not going to be a lot of gigs but you just got to stick with it. And, but so uh, the next thing up for this year, um, Mateel is going out. Uh, we'll be doing that in the summertime. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think we, we might be doing South by Southwest again this year. Um, you know, but there's going to be, I think, her first U.S. headlining tour. So I get to see a lot of the West Coast for the first time. Cool. So, you know, going up the East Coast, which is always fun. But I, I'm really excited to see the West Coast. And um, we're going back to Europe in, I think it's going to be June and July. Mm-hmm. Uh, More festivals. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's another thing, man. Once you get on this kind of circuit uh, with, like, the big management companies and everything, you start to see that everybody's on the same schedule. Yeah. That's, that's, like, the funnest, funniest thing to me, you know. Mm-hmm. Nobody's really out of reach at a certain point. Right. You know, and everybody has to, you know, no matter how big this act is, they still have to come to the same catering tent with you. Yeah. You know, and eat the same, like, chicken and potatoes. And, <laughs> you know, like, we're going to be eating the same food at the end of the day.
day. So don't, yeah. you know, don't act like you're all big and bad. Right. <laughs> but but everybody's on the same schedule. So during the, the the early summertime, they throw us on a lot of these like European festival tour stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we come back in the fall and we do like club dates. Right. You know, we do the indoor stuff. Right, right. So that's what we'll be doing for this year. Um, it, it should be fun. Cool. You know, the cool. schedule is getting bigger. But I'm also, uh, I just started... Um, you know, working and teaching uh, at uh, Meta Music. Are you familiar with this place? No, where's that at? Man, Meta's so cool. It's uh, it's in Sandy Springs. Okay. And, um, yeah, it's got Adam. Uh, you know, he, put, he was a teacher himself, and he kind of uh, put this idea into action, like, you know, we should learn music the same way we learn language. Hmm. You know, so, you know, when you, when you learn language, you know, we don't just give a kid an exercise book and tell them, like, this is how language works. Mm-hmm. You know, we do, but we know that's not how, how you learn words and right. phrases. Right. You learn it from just communicating with people and, mm-hmm. you know, learning how to, you know, form, uh, you know, speak in a certain dialect. You learn slang. You learn, you just learn how words work and right. how, how they affect the people around you. So his, his whole approach with meta music was like, we're going to teach music like as a concept first and then we'll teach you as an instrumentalist you know so instead of just like giving a kid a guitar and saying hey you know i want to learn this song on guitar and i want to learn how to do the tap stuff Mm -hmm. you know it's like no we're just going to teach you how to be a musician first and then we'll let you specialize on an instrument down the road cool so so it's and it's really cool for the kids because like you know kids don't really know what they want to do at a certain age you know so you you teach them hey this is how you make a major chord this is how you make a minor chord this is how you make a dominant uh you know this is what a seven does to your chord makes Uh it makes it sound really delicate and beautiful Uh right and then you give those tools to the kids you teach them a little bit of drums like basic rhythm and then you say okay well we've been in doing this for a couple weeks how about you go record a song and this is not (laughs) like you're not putting this in academic terms no you're you're just kind of it's it's an oral tradition exactly oral 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 and oral yeah yeah, yeah. so that that's been really cool i mean i just started there but i've got some really great friends that that have been working there for for a while and uh you know the whole thing is like teaching kids how to be musicians first and then letting them instantly like as soon as possible like express yourself and make musical acts this is something i'm trying to do with with some of my students and really i'm trying to do it with myself because Mm -hmm. I, you know, when I was a kid, I learned the way you were you were talking about yeah. like, through exercises, through notation. Same, um, and so that's what makes the most sense for me to teach. Mm-hmm. But not every kid, especially these days, yeah. with kids of all different types and all different, uh, shall we say, um, personalities. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, that's not how everybody learns. And and I've been trying to f- like find ways to be comfortable mm. talking in non-academic terms right. to kids who will get a concept. Uh, like if you put it a certain way, like yeah. they're not they're not going to get the the quarter notes and eighth notes mm-hmm. on the page. But if we can listen to something and talk about it and like mm-hmm. just finding a different way in, and I'm having successful days and yeah. maybe not so successful days. But and, and you know, I mean, even in my personal, you know, I've been doing this for years. You know, just trying to be a little, um, you know, just less formal with uh, teaching music to the kids. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, I understand some kids want to, you know, their parents put them in drum lessons because they want them to be first chair on the drum line. They want them to have a leg up, you know, which I, is cool. I understand. Right. But 
I can't deny that like learning how to just express yourself on an instrument is probably the biggest gift a teacher can can give you. Yep. You know, sometimes you might learn how to express yourself by, you know, doing independence exercises mm-hmm. or sometimes you might learn it by learning uh, rudiments or, you know, there's lots of different ways around it. But, mm-hmm. you know, just making sure like, OK, we're not just going to learn uh, the X's and O's. We're going to learn you know, how all of this relates to just having a good time with people on stage. Right. You know, right. to connecting with people. Tell me if you've had a challenge with this. Like What's that? I, I ask kids like what music they're into. Mm. Like I say next week, like bring me three or four songs that you're really into and, and what we'll, happens? we'll start learning them on drums. And then there it's it's all loops. It's all sequence. <laughs> Sometimes there's not even any fucking drums in it. Right. That's true. What do you do? Here's what I do. You know, um first off I really early in my teaching career, I had to accept that like, okay, kids are listening to mostly robots, Yeah, you know? So I, so, and you know, I was like, I can fight this and be like the old grumpy man saying, Oh, this is how drums are played, blah, blah, blah. Or I can just, you know, meet them halfway and be like, okay, well you want to play this? This is what it really sounds like. You know, this is, you know, this is what it, what it really is comprised of. And then you let the kids play that and you go, was that fun? Right. And, you know, sometimes the kids go, no, it's kind of boring. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it, it was made, that music was made by a robot. Yeah. So then you can use that opportunity to introduce them to like, okay, well, maybe you can jazz it up by playing more on the hi-hat, using doing hi-hat fills right. on a hip-hop song. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? And I, I found a couple ways in, like, uh, a bunch of kids are into trap, mm-hmm. um, but then I, I play them like Bill Withers with James Gadsden. I'm like... Like same beat and they might, not, they might not be into Bill Withers like <laughs> yeah. they might not dig that song but, but they're into just, those beats yeah yeah they're into and the other beats. thing I, I hate about well not not hate but the other challenge is that those songs are just so repetitive mm-hmm. like you can learn the beat if it's a loop yeah. or a sequence or whatever you can put it on the drum set yep. but then it's like okay you learn the beat Play it for four minutes. Right. That's you yeah. know, and that's boring. Yeah, to and you just kids. you just got to step back to the kid and be and just ask him like, hey, you played the whole song that you've been wanting to play all your life. Was that fun, or do you want to learn? Do you want to get deeper into this? Right. And most kids, most kids, once they learn how computer music is made, mm-hmm. nothing against computer music. I like I like lots of electronic music. Yeah, yeah. But once they learn how computer music is made, they're like, oh, there's something deeper than this. This is just an imitation of what a real drummer yeah. could do. Mm-hmm. So I always use those those uh you know when i ask kids about what music they're listening to usually it comes out to like imagine dragons yeah so much imagine dragons <laughs> they have the market corner bro. oh they do uh so much imagine dragons or like a you know maybe a a, a katie perry song or you know uh whatever what's the what's the duo the um uh stressed out uh you know um, stressed out yeah, it's that duo duo act. It's the drummer and the guitarist. Um, everybody wants to play them. I can't remember that. Uh, White Stripes. No. <laughs> no, see, I'm going to look. Find it, it find it. I, I got you got it. internet right there, man. Yeah. Let's see. It's 21 Pilots. Ah, I didn't know it was a duo. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a duo. Yeah. Um, I thought it was just a robot. The whole, I thought, I thought <laughs> well, it, was... it probably is, but it's two of them in the video. Okay, you know? okay. But yeah, you get a lot of that? Yeah. That's your, yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, it's just find, finding a way to like, you know, they, they're into the song, but yeah. once they get into the drum part, whatever mm-hmm. it is, it's like, well, there's really not much to this. Yeah, and kid, man, kids love, um, you know, most kids actually love being responsible for something 
is what I found. Like you found that, huh? I found that. It's like we we we're you know, we think kids don't like you know kind of shun responsibility, uh-huh. but sometimes when you get when you like make something really like truly important to a kid and mm-hmm. and you 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 make that kid understand the gravity of what he's learning mm-hmm. uh, man I've seen so many kids really take off with it yeah you know like I, I have a, I had a few students back in Columbus man uh you know uh, a student named Chris that has been just like you know I kind of had that talk with him you know he came in as just like almost like me like he played gospel music and he he just wanted to like learn how to play snare drum so he could be in the band and yeah. march and be the drumline kid yeah. But man, he's like taken off so much, even like in the years after I've I've been his teacher, mm-hmm. uh, because I feel like I instilled in him like, hey, this is a dying art, you know, and and you have a responsibility. Like, if you want to be really good at this thing, you can create a space for yourself in this world where you're almost like a, you know, like I think of myself as kind of holding a tradition, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm really carrying a torch, right? You know, as you're like, part of a continuum. Yeah, you know, I'm one of the last living real drummers, <laughs> you know. Hopefully not, <laughs> right? Jesus, you know, but that that's kind of the gravity that I bring to the situation is like, you know. There, there's still something very important about having a, a live uh, drummer behind you that, mm-hmm. that's making, you know, making mistakes and, you know, sometimes pushing the tempo a little bit, sometimes right. lagging a little bit. You know, the making, imperfections. Making decisions and making Making decisions. Yeah. You know, I'm not just a, a you know, a rogue brat that was programmed to play a beat. Right. You know, I'm making musical decisions. So when you give kids that responsibility, the good ones usually, like, run with it. And right. they, they, they They revel in it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Cool. Um, so, yeah, man, I've... I've I've had some great students back, you know, throughout the years. Yeah, and it's, it sounds like you're you're part of a place, as am I, yeah. that cultivates like a good, you know, a good group of dedicated, cool students and parents. Yeah, like they mm-hmm. don't they don't tolerate for very long, you know, <laughs> yeah. a, a student who is a dick or mm-hmm. parents who are like you know football dads. Yep, um, it's you know it's kind of a curated. Uh, student body. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that really helps. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, Meta, uh, you know, in the short time I've been there, so, you know, really cool, really chill environment, man. And, and uh, you know, they basically just set it up as like an open campus music school. That's so, cool. you know, yeah, you can sign up for your weekly lesson, but you can come in, you know, during later in the week, aside from your lesson, if you want, you know, yeah. you pay a lot of money, just come hang out. <laughs> and you can, you know, you can jam with, you know, we always make jamming a big part of the curriculum. Right. So, yeah, I've been enjoying that. Uh, you know, getting ready for the Matil stuff and uh, recording my own music. You yeah. know, for the like the first time ever. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's been that's been really fun. And man. is that something you, you want to release eventually, or are you just kind of putting yourself through the paces of? Right now, I'm I'm going through the paces yeah. because I'm I kind of have some of that rusty water. Yeah, I'm just letting <laughs> that rusty water flow, man. Yeah, and yeah. it's just now starting to clear up. Right. And and uh, you know uh, the the place I'm stuck at now is just. You know, I don't want to just release music just for the sake of releasing music. Yeah. You know, I want the. You know, I want it to be like a project where I can really work merchandise and branding and everything. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I want it to be bigger than just the. You know, music on a MP3. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, you can only release your music once, alleged supposedly. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I just want it. You know, I want it to be a really focused project by the time it comes out. And you know, I might, I might 
you know, make a band out of it, mm-hmm. you know, because I, like I said, I'm a band guy. I right, like I like right. the synergy that comes with working with the same cats. So who knows what it'll turn into? I, I interviewed Elmo Lovano from Jam Car hey, um, a, few, a few months ago, and uh, he's he said, whenever you're releasing anything, mm-hmm. just get it done. Yep. First, mm-hmm. like get it completely fucking done. Yeah. First, then. Set your release date. Figure out how you're going to market it. Like and push right because if you do any of that shit before it's done, then <laughs> it's it's not going to be what it's supposed to be. That's so true. You know, figure out what it is and then figure out what. That's to do so with true. It. I've seen so many people just sit on projects for you know like great projects and great musicians. I've seen so many people just sit on projects for three, four years mm-hmm. because because of that. Yeah. You know, sometimes they they. They're so intent on making a release date that they forget to finish the project that they're actually working on. And then it it just ends up being like, you know, Dr. Dre ether, you know, like everybody's waiting for a decade for you to drop the greatest album, quote unquote, you know, of your career. And, you know, sometimes, man, you just have to get that project done and then work on releasing it. Right. Maybe while you're while you're working on releasing it, you can start on the next recording project Mm -hmm. and get that going. But, you know, one project at a time. Cool. You know, cool. Well, man, it's it sounds like uh, it sounds like you're killing it and gonna continue. Man, I'm trying to. Yeah, I'm trying. Hey, man, did I tell you I met Tony Allen? Do no. you know Tony Allen? Uh. Uh-uh. You should know Tony Allen. Who's Tony Allen? He'll make you a better drummer. <laughs> All right, look, you gotta know. And hey, listeners, I don't know who's listening to this. Maybe it's beginners. Maybe it's you know working drummers. Because uh-huh. as a working drummer, I listen to the podcast. But Tony Allen can teach you guys a lot, you know, like he, um, Tony Allen was, uh, Fela Kuti's original drummer. Okay. You know, like he, he, he and Fela really crafted the Afrobeat sound, like mm-hmm. what we know of Afrobeat. Um, and man, uh, me and Travis were huge, huge fans of, uh, of Fela, yeah. mainly Travis. He's like a Fela stan. Like yeah, he yeah. loves, he loves Fela. But we, uh, when we played the Jewel show, uh, one of the bands that was sharing the bill with us was um, The Good, The Bad, and The Queen. Huh. And uh, that was my first time hearing of the band. I didn't know who it was. Uh-huh. And then, like, once I get on set for the first day of, like, practice, you know, setting up and practice recording, I'm kind of looking at some of the bands, and I'm like, Good, Bad, The Queen. Okay, that's a decent band name, blah, blah, blah. And then the guys start showing up, and first comes out the van, uh, it's a... Uh, uh, Sci- uh, what's his name? Paul Simonon uh-huh. from uh, The Clash. Uh-huh. The guy like busting the bass guitar on the front of that yeah. the cover, yeah, the yeah. London Calling cover. I was like, wow, that's cool that he's in that band. And then I see Tony Allen get out. And I'm like, whoa, like <laughs> Fela's drummer is playing yeah. for this rock and roll band. And then I see uh, Damon Auburn get out from uh, Gorillaz and Blur. Whoa. And I'm like, whoa, I think I just saw a super group. Yeah. You know? But seeing Tony Allen, man, like his style, you know, we're talking about like got like innovators. Mm-hmm. He really created his own style. And uh, you know, there's so many guys that even electronic musicians that kind of like are copping his style. Mm-hmm. Man, he's such a good study in like linear I guess linear drumming or just it's a different way of thinking about drums. Right. You know? Right. And you got to hang with him a little bit? Uh barely hang with him. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have this thing when I got to Atlanta, I kinda got used to like meeting celebrities and my whole strategy is just like you know, appreciate them out loud real quick mm-hmm. and then get the hell on. Yep. You know, like I don't exactly you know, like I'll I'll say thank you. I know who you are. 
Yeah. Bye. <laughs> you know, yeah. so that's kind of my thing. So I ran up on Tony, you know, and uh, he was just like rolling up his 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 joint or whatever. Like he's Tony Allen smokes hella weed, <laughs> and then like you know he was he was <laughs> he was he was rolling his shit, and I just ran up on him. Me and Travis, I was like, man, I really appreciate everything you do. You know, thank you, blah blah blah. And he was uh you know he was just really uh really humble cat. Yeah. And then after that, I just kind of got got on because I didn't know what his schedule was looking like. Right. But uh yeah, man, great dude. And he he plays super quiet, which was kind of weird. That, yes. that surprised me. Like, he plays, like, an inch away from the drums. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like it, You know who else does that? Who does that? Purdy. Really? Yeah. He doesn't play loud? No. Because I've, I've, I've seen him a couple times with because he does the ATL Collective Funky Christmas thing. Man, I got to get that. I got, I, I got to, it's, man. Yeah. But, I mean, he he has, like, some flourishes where he'll, like, really kind of raise his arms. And, yeah. and I mean, it's almost kind of a Mueller thing. Yeah. But it's, but it's um, you know, just kind of a visual flourish right. that he does. But if he's grooving, like, he's got little jazz sticks, like, wow. not digging in at all. Man. Just, like, skipping along the surface. <laughs> and yeah, and if like now when I hear him like on a you know a James Brown record or Steely Dan or whatever, like I visualize that touch, mm. you know, because the groove is deep, like yeah. the the beat is like hits hard, but he doesn't hit hard. And that's the thing, man. A lot of drummers don't realize a lot of times, man. The you know the mics are always listening. Yeah, you know, and you know you got to think about like if you if you're if you, the microphone was like your ear, mm-hmm. you know, and just thinking like what would that drum sound like if my ear was two inches away from it right you know like right. so so that like those older guys man they understood playing in all those studio sessions like you don't have to smash it the drum mm-hmm. the 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 microphone's gonna hear everything yeah you know and then of course if you if you play too soft they can bring you up but a lot of times it's hard to get a rich drum tone if we can't you know if we have to compress everything or if we have to limit everything because you're so fucking loud right you know it's it it cuts the other way though because it Ah. it it bit me in the ass one time when i was playing with delta moon (laughs) what'd you do um i just like we did sound check and like maybe my hands were kind of stiff that day or Mm -hmm. or something but i just kind of decided for that gig Mm -hmm. for no particular reason i was like i'm not gonna smash it on this gig i'm gonna let the mics do the work i'm just gonna be relaxed and we did sound check we went through a song and tom the lead singer was like could you could you hit the snare, please? <laughs> like, because he was hearing it. Like, yeah. the mics were doing what they're supposed to do, but there was no energy. There was yeah. no spirit. And, mm. like, that's what he needs. Yeah. He needs that snare on two and four and mm. just kick him in the ass every time. <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess I don't get to relax today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. I found with me, like, I, I have a – I've traditionally been – a loud ass motherfucker, like you know, even back when, especially back in the church days, you know, I, they they wanted to put the plexiglass around me right. and like muffle all the drums, you know. So I have that experience of just being like a loud, heavy, energetic drummer. So like being able to let the mics do, like you said, let the mics do the work, uh, it's helped me a lot. And you know, the sound guys like you a lot more. They can they can, you know, a lot of times they can do more with you. Yeah. You know when you're. You know, kind of being low key, right? And then when you actually want to be rock and roll at the end of the set, it actually makes you physically a physical presence yeah. in the room. Totally, you know, where people are like, "Oh my god!" Like mm-hmm. my my nose hairs are falling out. <laughs> you know, it, the the dynamic range like definitely gives you a better live effect. That's so interesting because we like we talk all the time about picking your spots with fills. Yeah, like if you just play pocket all night, that that one time that you choose to break one off, like that's when the crowd's it's gonna like, be like, "Oh <gasps> shit!" Yeah. Right. But you can do. That 
that with volume too. Yeah, which we don't think about a lot. Like you can just stay in the background and just pick one or two spots to just like get up in. So it. So true, and, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, and just playing playing with Mateo. I mean, you know, they people listen and they expect the rock and roll. Yeah. You know, we 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 bring it pretty heavy like compared to her record Mm -hmm. but people always respect like just a heavy rock and roll sound and just like bashing the drums and you know i always step to it first and try to be you know really respectful and almost treat it like a like i'm back in an r&b singer right you know it's like when she's singing i get out of the way blah 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 Mm -hmm. but it's like yeah man when it when it's uh when it's time to thrash you know i want to come through and i want to be like a real presence in that room you know yeah yeah so yeah well, thanks for talking, man. Thanks for coming hey, over. Thanks for having me, man. Um, you know, if anybody wants to check out the uh, the burgeoning uh, recording career of me, you can <laughs> check out uh, Snare Jordan on SoundCloud. And, um, you know, I'll be around with Mateel this summer. Cool. Yeah. Be on the lookout for him. Thanks, Zach. Great talking to you, man. Yeah, dude. Thanks again to Jordan for that talk. Check him out on Instagram and SoundCloud. And be on the lookout for Mateel coming to your town in 2019. Once again, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Give us a like and a follow on YouTube. Give us a rating and review on iTunes and Stitcher. And, of course, keep in touch with us if you've got something to relate. Hope you join us next week for Matt Krause's interview. As always, thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.